This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. How are you all? I hope you've all had a lovely week. Um, this week, as I record this on Friday the 8th of October at 15.32 on <laughs> Monday, it was my birthday. Ryan got a bit older. I turned 32... Thir- uh, 32... <laughs> Thanks for all the nice messages, though. That meant a lot. Lots of you telling me that um, 32 is not old and I'm I'm in my prime, apparently. <laughs> I don't know what what it means when you're in your prime and you can't get off the floor without using your hands and your back clicking, but apparently I'm in my prime. But I've had a lovely week and we've had some good news. I realised I hadn't been updating you lot on Into the Wild's exciting project much um, because I was listening back to the episode with Tanya Esteban that came out last Monday on on my birthday, on the 4th of October, and I realised... Because Tanya reminded me that I should be updating you on this project. So let's let's do that now, shall we? For those of you that don't know, myself and a small team, Oscar included, who edits the show, and Adam Hart have had a an amazing opportunity to create a, an, an on-location episode special, a mini-documentary in Africa, in Namibia. This documentary is called Beyond the Trigger, and what it is, is a look at going to the country, visiting several conservancies, and talking to local people, landowners, reserve workers and owners and asking them what their thoughts are on trophy hunting. If they use it, why they use it, why they decide not to use it, how it works in regards to ecotourism alongside ecotourism as well. And it's been a project that's taken a bit of shape over the last few months, but there had been a massive roadblock in this, which was COVID travel. However, yesterday, um, on a Thursday, it was announced that Namibia is coming off of the red list for travel, which means we can book our tickets and get going. This is very exciting. Not only exciting for us, but it's exciting for the the county, (laughs) the continent, (laughs) the continent of Africa, because it means that tourism and other um, exciting things can start to open up for them as well so it's looking like things are going to go a bit further ahead with the plans and we've got a meeting next week so keep your eye on into the world's twitter and instagram i'll be announcing a few updates but that is it's very exciting i've got my sun cream factor 50 patch ready to go even though it's a wet season ryan still needs to be very careful <laughs> so that's your update um if you've ever got any questions about into the world's beyond the trigger feel free to give me a shout into the world pod at gmail.com but you know you know what the time is now it's time for some positivity as I dive in to 60 second nature news. I've got four positive nature stories. Deep breath. As COP26 is getting closer, people are gearing up to not only keep in the loop, but to keep positive and learn what is really being done for nature. One exciting documentary is being filmed right now called My Changing Planet. 
Vet and conservationist Sean McCormack and a team are sailing from Cornwall to St Kilda, then back to Glasgow for the COP26, while stopping off to interview people who are working on exciting wildlife projects. Keep up to date with My Changing Planet at mychangingplanet.com. The rare invertebrates in the Cairngorms Twitter account tweeted to announce that 46 pine hoverfly larvae, a very rare species, once found throughout Scotland but now only limited to two sites, in some lumps created by the owners near the original wild site. It is a great example of how providing suitable habitat can attract species further out their range. Natural England have confirmed that the Cotswolds Water Park has now been designated as a site of special scientific interest. With 177 lakes in the park, it is home to many species of rare bird and around 35,000 water birds present over the winter. And finally, researchers have described 12 new gecko species from the Western Ghats mountain range in India, 10 of which are found nowhere else. This project was part of a larger survey to document the diversity of frogs, snakes and lizards of the Western Ghats and search for critical endangered species. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Woo, there we go. That was 60 Second Nature News. Very sorry to Oscar who had to listen to me cough my guts up halfway through. That. It was not a very nice thing to have to listen to. Uh, it's not COVID, by the way. If anyone's pat, it's not COVID. I mean, not that you'd be able to catch it for a podcast anyway. But I'd, I'd like to think you'd still care if I had COVID, but I don't have COVID. It's just a cold got to say that let's move on to today's show today we're talking about a topic that is incredibly divisive and something that everyone's got an opinion on in the uk and rightly so because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a nasty one today we're talking about um bovine tuberculosis and how it's managed in england which is pretty much we shoot the out of a load of badgers um (laughs) have done for many years and will do for a few more years to go it doesn't look like it's solving the problem i don't think it will solve a problem that's my opinion but i wanted to talk about it on into the wild so i had to find the right person someone that wasn't biased i didn't want someone who super loved badgers which is hard to find because everyone loves a badger and i didn't want to find a farmer i wanted to find someone that works with diseases someone that knew their stuff and knew the right course to go forward in maybe eradicating disease or maybe just controlling disease and letting it be and medicating it and i managed to find this person on twitter after reading a thread called alex simmons a veterinarian and a naturalist who joined me on the show to talk about this very topic alec has had an extensive career working for government with disease control it was an absolute pleasure to get the opportunity to talk to him and it was really really insightful and interesting chat so this episode is called badgers and bovine tuberculosis with alex simmons enjoy Alec, welcome to Into the Wild. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's a very warm day here in London. I've had to close my window because there's gardening going outside. So if I start looking hot and sweaty, it's because it's London's microclimate <laughs> affecting me. Um, we're going to be talking about something that it kind of comes up every single year. It's and, and rightly so, causes a lot of outrage. There's a lot of confusion around it. And I feel like it's been in the media in some way in England a lot over the last month with one particular story and I'm determined not to mention that animal's name no disrespect to the animal but I've just I think my ears have gone deaf on it but before we get onto the topic Alec welcome to Into the Wild could you start by telling us all who you are and what is it you do? Yeah thank you very much thank you very much for inviting me Brian uh, my name's Alex Simmons I'm a veterinarian I'm yeah almost completely retired now I was a government veterinarian for over 35 years and the most recent job I had was the UK's deputy chief vet uh, which I left at the end of uh, December 
2015, almost six years ago. Prior to that, I'd done a variety of different things, uh, worked overseas and uh, done a lot of inspection work. I also was in the Food Standards Agency. I was a veterinary director there. So oh, cool. got a background in public health, animal welfare and epidemic disease control. Since I left government service, I've been doing a, a number of different things. I do a bit of voluntary work for the RSPB and Natural England, doing a bit of survey work on the cranes and in Somerset, which is where I live. And I'm the chair of two charities that are joined together. One is the Humane Slaughter Association, which looks for uh, better ways to uh, handle animals and slaughter them prior to them being eaten or uh, for other reasons. And I also uh, chair of the University's Federation for Animal Welfare. I also am a member of um, a group that advises two conservation bodies on animal welfare, ethics, and wildlife and that's a, a really new development very pleased to get involved in that wow so you've got that's a finger in a lot of pies you've got there i think well it, 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 it's it's not, none of these things are desperately time consuming what i used to take up an awful lot of my time was indulging my passion which is traveling to watch and photograph wildlife so i've done a lot of that and the last 18 months has just been nothing so i'm really looking forward to perhaps next year uh, picking that up again and doing a bit more traveling I've got ideas of all sorts of places but whether my my children will let me go given the carbon footprint of long distance travel goodness only knows <laughs> yeah it's it's a new wave of guilt isn't it we want to go and see wildlife but we're not allowed to go see it. <laughs> that's it <laughs> Um, so my next question is one that every guest gets here on Into the Wild, and it always feels like a bit of a deep question. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll change it in the future, but I like it for now. It's what does wildlife and nature mean to you, Alec? Okay, well, I think I said I'm a real sort of wildlife nut. I've been a passionate wildlife watcher for, well, since I was in my mid-teens, so that's knocking on 50 years, and I'm quite keen wildlife photographer. But I think the main thing, quite apart from collecting ticks and photographs is just feeling that you've got the solitude and the interaction between the environment mm. which you're in, whether it happens to be any wildlife there or not, and a feeling that you've sort of, I don't know, it's a bit of a cheesy phrase, but being connected with nature. I'm lucky I live on the edge of the Somerset levels and I walk them a lot, quite keen to just poke about there and get involved in a bit of survey work. And I, I enjoy it for its own sake rather than for it being something which uh, I feel like can be monetized or mm. compartmentalized or commercialized. It's something which I think is is there for everybody. I'm very keen that more and more people enjoy it. I think, I think that connection with nature is definitely something that it means to everyone, isn't it? It's just that, it, it's just, I, I always feel like it's like an escape. I don't know. That's what it means to me. It's just an escape and going to see the real world and remi- remind yourself it's around you. Um, yes. Let's move on to our topic today, which I can't, I actually, do you know what? Considering this comes up every single year, I know sweet FA about this topic, really. Apart from the fact of it happens and how it seems to be managed poorly, in my opinion. But like I said, I also know nothing about it, so my opinion is probably worthless on it. But we're going to be talking about, well, two main things. We're going to be talking about bovine tuberculosis and how it's managed within England. But we're also going to be talking about the welfare of managing animals, I guess, on on land in in England as well. So let's start with the most basic question, I guess. Let's get right down to the roots of this. Alec, what is 
bovine TB? Well, bovine TB is, as the name implies, a disease of cattle, which is caused by an organism called Mycobacterium bovis. Mycobacterium tuberculosis is a, is a disease that affects people, and Mycobacterium bovis is a bacterium that affects cattle. But both these organisms are not confined to the two species I've just mentioned. They can affect other species. So bovine tuberculosis can affect people. So it's therefore it's a zoonosis. Mm. It can affect badgers, as we know, and a number of other mammals. In fact, potentially it can affect any other mammal. Oh, wow. Um, it's extremely difficult to diagnose. It's difficult, if not impossible, to treat in animals. And prevention of it is difficult as well. And it's beset the cattle industry in this country ever since, really, we started to keep dairy cattle in any substantial numbers, really mm. from about the 1850s. And that was the cause of a large number of infections in people, particularly young people. Um, and even in the 1930s, before we started to get on top of it properly, uh, there were 3,500 deaths a year caused by bovine TB and Almost invariably, that was because of drinking raw infected milk. So once a cow gets affected quite badly, it will develop abscesses or contain the organism around its body. If it develops them in the mammary gland, the udder, then along with the milk, it will be producing the organism. And then when it's drunk, if it's not been pasteurized or otherwise heat treated, it will cause an infection and used to cause an awful lot of disease in people it killed quite a lot of people but you'd get things like tuberculous abscesses in the hips or uh mm. in the lungs or a variety of other things and of course that caused all sorts of problems so from the 1920s on but only really seriously after the second world war there was an enormous effort to try and eradicate a disease from cattle unfortunately that hasn't been successful and we are now into 70 years of official controls and with another according to the government's strategy another 17 years to go because the strategy is intending to eradicate the organism from cattle by 2038 now that's by any stretch of the imagination a very long period of time to have official controls for any disease. I spent a lot of time working on foot and mouth disease, BSE, brucellosis, and a variety of other diseases of cattle and other livestock. And the success of those in comparison with the controls on bovine TB is very, very stark. And whilst you've got different incubation periods between those diseases, the incubation period of bovine tuberculosis is much, much shorter than um, BSE, which has got an incubation period of between four and six years. Um, TB probably be, well, probably four to six months at the outside before you can properly diagnose it using the tests that are available. And yet we now, we managed to get rid of BSE in the space of 10 to 15 years, uh, so say three incubation periods yeah. uh, with TB, we're probably into 30 or 40 or 50 now. So the controls are really difficult. And whilst we came close to eradicating it by the 60s, it picked up a lot in the late 70s and during the 80s, and particularly after the foot and mouth disease outbreak in 2001, to the extent now where there are large tracts of England and Wales that are badly affected with bovine TB in cattle. So I can't avoid the B word now. It's not going to be Brexit, it's badgers. Um, and badgers are known to be infected with bovine TB. Uh, it was first identified, I think, in 1972 or three. 
and mm. there have been controls of one sort or another trying to get rid of badges uh, since then. But since, I think, 2013, there has been a widespread, systematic and protracted campaign to kill very large numbers of badges across England, I should say. Extremely controversial and without putting too fine a point on it, I don't believe it's going to work. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's the big thing because my next question was going to be to you, like, how does bovine tuberculosis affect, obviously, livestock is a very obvious one as we've gone through there, but also wildlife. But like you said, it can contract onto other mammals and badgers is one is is well known for it. I mean, 70 years and then going up to another 17 years. And when when did the cull of badgers start? When was the, When did that come in as a process of how to manage tuberculosis? Well, the first coming took place, I think, in the mid-70s. Um, it, there's been various different forms of it since then, but the most widespread, most numerous killing of badgers started in 2013. And the area that is now given over to killing badgers is, I calculated this, I got some information through Freedom of Information, calculated this. The area that is given over to killing badgers in England now is larger than the area of the Kruger National Park, the Everglades National Park, and the Royal Chitwan National Park in Nepal combined. So uh, I think the size of the Kruger National Park is about the size of Switzerland. Uh, so th- th- this is nothing. Tri- this is not a trivial exercise. This is not a, a minor exercise. This is an exercise yeah. against a native wild mammal, which, albeit being uh, is is quite abundant, and it's certainly around here it was abundant before they started killing them. The density of of badges in Western England and and South Wales and so forth is probably the highest in the world because the environment is absolutely perfect for them. High rainfall, uh, lots of grass, good digging for sets, and almost certainly uh, an environment which has been unwittingly manufactured by farming activities, which provides what I would call super-optimal habitat. Mm. So you've got this huge population of badgers which sustains infection within them and almost certainly does infect cattle and i i the the evidence about whether or not badgers represent a threat to cattle is irrefutable in my view uh, mm. that doesn't necessarily mean killing them is the best way of dealing with it i mean yeah that's a, that's that's a very interesting point isn't it because we can't i guess that's one one important thing to say is we can't uh, we can't ignore both sides of that, that there is a problem here, but also maybe the solution is not the one we kind of need, as you and I probably would agree with that. I guess this question is, and I don't know if I'm looking at this too simplistically, like I said, my knowledge on it is quite slim, but is the general idea behind the culling of badgers, the large number, is merely to reduce the risk of transferring the disease from badgers to cattle? Ultimately, the intention is to eliminate the infection from cattle. Uh, So it's worth pointing out, because I think quite a lot of people forget this, is that there are a great deal of measures being applied to cattle. Many Mm. of them are quite draconian. They may not be quite draconian enough, but they do disrupt the business of keeping cattle considerably. Yeah. Uh, farms are put under movement restrictions. There's a lot of testing. There's a lot of removal of affected or infected or reactor cattle. And that is an enormous disruption to farmers' livelihoods in the same way that BSE was, in the same way that foot and mouth disease was, yeah. but over a much shorter timescale. And the important thing here is that if you're going to achieve something then it should be humane, it should be value for money, it should have a chance of success, 
and there should be an exit strategy. My view, it has none of those. Okay. Uh, I don't believe the current way of controlling disease or infection in, in badgers and controlling infection in cattle will achieve eradication by 2038. The Measures that are in place now, and it's arguable whether they are working in terms of reducing the number of infections Mm. for herd outbreaks in cattle, is genuine. But even if it was working, the reduction in numbers of cases, in herd cases, is not really terribly great. And bear in mind that what you're looking for and what you would expect with a, 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 an effective eradication strategy is a precipitous drop in the epidemic curve. Yeah. Epidemic curve would come down almost vertically. And then you deal with a long tail. But if you don't get that precipitous drop, then you can't clear up the mopping up bit towards yeah. the end because you never <laughs> yeah. get to that stage. And we're a long, long way from that. So I don't see the solution there. Now, there's a lot of talk about vaccine for cattle, a lot of talk about vaccines for, for badgers. And whilst I could go into a lot of detail about both, I'm not convinced that either of those are going to be particularly effective either. Because if you're trying to eliminate an infection from either species, but particularly cattle, what you're looking for is keeping the herds free of infection, not just damping down disease. Yeah. Okay. And my concern about the way in which we're approaching this now is that we're using the tools for eradication, but ineffective. And all we're achieving is a modicum of control. And control could lead to eradication, but in order for eradication to be achieved, you expect the control measures to be more effective than they are currently. I was going to say, it sounds like badgers are going to have to go, or cattle are going to have to go into lockdown. <laughs> Well, there's no doubt about it that one of the problems is that the disease is still spreading to new areas. One of the things that's happened is a number of areas like uh, in Cumbria and Lincolnshire that have been free for a long time where badgers have started to be killed in the last two to three years. And the reason for that is because infected cattle are moving into these areas because the movement controls are applied to cattle movements are not draconian enough, they're not rigorous enough, and they need to be more rigorous if you're going to stop the spread of a disease. It's all very well said we're burying down disease in these areas in the West Country, but if you're Mm. not stopping infection getting to the north of England and the east of England, you're not really achieving a great deal. And then, of course, the other thing that I think is important to mention here is that if you're going to do this, it should be done humanely, and there is not the evidence to support that. That's a big thing, isn't it? Let's come on to that in a minute, because that's a really good point and something I really want to discuss, because it's come up in conversation quite a lot. And it's So we've got this, like you said, a control element element from culling badgers to essentially eradicate, but we're not seeing that actually happen. And we've got 17 years left of this plan. So I guess, how has this kind of level of culling affected the numbers of badgers in England? I don't know how big the numbers are. Bear in mind that badgers are a relatively fecund species. The population uh, fluctuates quite highly and the numbers will go up and down depending on circumstances. Drought in particular is is, uh, not a friend of badgers because it drives the worms, which is one of their main staples, down into the depths of the earth and they can't find them. So dry summers or even dry springs can be bad for breeding. Uh, maintenance of, of youngsters, recruitment of uh, youngsters, the adult population. But the population 
has been very high for a long time. It may have been as many as half a million adults across the country at one stage. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Having killed six figures, it will have had a hit. Now, <laughs> yeah, um, gonna, yeah. The Bern Convention, which is a convention under the Council of Europe, commits members, of which Britain is one or the UK is one, to uh, not causing, amongst other things, local extinction of certain species. Yeah. Badges is one of them. Uh, and I've been involved in a challenge too, which has been submitted to the Bird Convention Secretariat, saying that local extinction, possibly even air extinction, is taking place. Because even though the imperative is that you will not kill more than between, you, the intention is to kill between 70 and 95% of the 90% of the badges in a given area. But that area can be as much as 350 square kilometers. And removing that number is almost certainly going to be possible to do it evenly because inevitably the badges that are going to be shot, trapped, and then shot are going to be in areas which are more accessible and uh, probably away from areas uh, which are um, inhabited, you know, villages and so forth, uh, or possibly in uh, nature reserves and so forth. And if that is the case, then it's quite likely that the distribution of killing and therefore the distribution of those badges that are left is going to be patchy, which means that there will be some sets that are killed out completely and some that aren't. What that does is uh, upset the social structure of the badger groupings, and then you start getting movements around, which may actually increase the risk of transmission between sets and social groups where they were relatively stable before. It's an unproven theory, but it's quite plausible. But in any case, if the numbers are kept down, there will be less transmission between badges, but there will still be some because there will still be some badges. And if there's still some badges, then if the disease does transmit from badges to cattle, which I think the evidence is pretty clear it does, then you'll still get infections into 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 cattle. So what it's doing is possibly reducing the problem, but I don't see that there's anything that's on the horizon or in use at the moment that's going to lead towards eradication. Okay, here's a point. <laughs> Could we not Okay, this is really I'm gonna sound very ignorant here. And if there are any farmers listening I I mean, no offence to this. I really don't. Are there not better ways to keep badgers away from cattle? Uh, I think badgers are an extraordinarily flexible and resilient beast. Yeah, yeah. They're omnivorous. They change their diet according to the time of year quite dramatically. And they do survive pretty unpleasant environments. Um, I don't think they really cope with hard cold like, say, a wolverine might, but they will cope with pretty torrential weather, rain, floods, frosts, but they wouldn't cope with sort of permafrost, for example. So they're pretty resilient, tough beasts. Mm. And they're also very capable of getting into all sorts of places. They can climb, they can dig, they can find their way into farm buildings unless their security is high. And they will also get into uh, troughs, feed troughs, water troughs, unless they're very carefully designed as well. And those are difficult to do. Right, okay. So if transmission is taking place between cattle and badgers, the way to do this is to reduce the likelihood of cattle and badgers coming into contact with each other. Cattle eat grass, badgers forage on pasture. 
So on pasture, it's very, very difficult to do, simply because badgers forage on pasture, particularly short pasture, which is what cattle are often grazing on, um, to get worms. Yeah. So it is difficult. But keeping your building secure, feed stores where the cattle are in at night uh, or overwintered uh, is very well worth doing, making sure that your feed troughs and water troughs are secure. There's lots of different advice about that. It's difficult. It's not perfect. It's like trying to insulate an old house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's always one wee crack that you can't get on top of. Every single measure will reduce the risk, even if it doesn't eliminate it. And I guess it's exploring them, isn't it? It's, it's trying to do as much as you can to keep it away. Um, before we move on to, because I want to talk about some alternative ways, but for, before we do, you mentioned that point about if we're going to go down this route of the cull or you know lethal management, it's about doing this as in the most humane way possible, and I think that's important. I think that's important because of the species we are. We're very hyper aware, so why would we not put that onto some respect of what the things that we're doing, whether we agree with the culling or not, or of any animal? Um, and I've certainly got my views, and I know my listeners know that, but doing this in the most humane respectful way is, is important and do you feel that is being done currently well i think the first thing to say is that when the government decided that it was going to kill badgers or at least was working up to making that decision it did go into a huge amount of effort to establish the best way of shooting badgers okay now when we were doing the culling trial to work out whether culling badgers worked or not the randomized badger culling trial all of the badgers were trapped and they were all shot using a pistol in a trap. So therefore, the welfare of that, even though obviously it's not ideal, uh, was very effective because what you do is a bullet would go into the brain, a frangible bullet, and it would cause instantaneous unconsciousness and death. That is used for a relatively small amount of badger killing now. The vast majority, 70% plus, are shot with a rifle, what's known as free shooting. So yeah. a high-powered rifle of... 0.243 or uh, around about that is used with a hollow nose bullet which expands on entry and causes an enormous amount of concussive power. Jesus. If you shoot a badger at right angles at the right distance using the right rifle and the right charge, right bullet, uh, you will kill that animal very, very quickly. And government appointed an independent group to advise it. And I know a number of people were on that and they did a very, very good job. In fact, yeah. I think it's worth pointing out that that is probably the only really comprehensive study of the welfare of killing wild animals. Wow, okay. There are other ones, uh, but the vast majority of those miss uh, a consideration of the animals that are shot at that weren't retrieved. What this does is go into that detail and, and extrapolates from that detail and makes conclusions and makes recommendations about what ought to happen. And one of the things they said was that because a substantial number, I don't remember the exact number, of animals were shot at and uh, weren't retrieved, then if you made the assumption that each of those was hit but wasn't killed and ran off, went down a hole or ran off far enough, not to be able to retrieve, rather than missed altogether, then that number of animals almost certainly would have taken a long time to die. So if you've got your 85, 90% of the animals that have been shot properly, the right distance at the right angle with the right bullet, and somebody who's competent, 
those you're not worried about those, at least from the point of view of welfare, because they're dead. Yeah. They would have died quickly. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. The other ones which were shot at and either missed altogether, in which case they got away, no problem, or they were shot at and were wounded, you have to worry about those. And the you, what you have to do is find a way of reducing that number down to as low a figure as possible. Now, the problem is with this is that in order to be able to do that, you have to do a lot of observations. So the independent group that advised the government said, you must do more observations in order to do this. You must observe the shooters. And there are probably four figures of these now. Over a 1,000 of people have been authorised to do this. Jesus. You must observe what they're doing and satisfy yourself the job is being done properly. Now, they do publish figures every year. I don't have them to hand. I could get them for you if you wanted. But the figures show that the proportion of shots that are or badges shot at that are observed by an independent observer that is outside of the cold companies yeah. that have got the contracts to do this is well below 1%, which almost certainly means, given that the area that's been done and the number of shooters are involved, that many of the people doing this work are never observed doing their job by a third party, somebody independent. And okay. given that the recommendation from this group, which were preeminent pathologists and animal behaviorists and biologists uh, said that you should do this, I've concluded in what I've written that you cannot say this has been done humanely. Uh, and, uh, you, and without more data, even though the government says they believe it's being done humanely, there is nothing to support that statement. That's insane that that many people and no one's watching, really. And, and, and it's worth remembering, and you know, we said we were going to talk about other wildlife. <laughs> There's an awful lot of shooting of wildlife, uh, another killing of wildlife, for which there is absolutely no supervision at all. Yes, very true, yes. And I can say that deer stalking, pheasant shooting, stoat trapping, crow trapping, snaring, and uh, the poisoning of rats and mice. There is absolutely yeah. no supervision of that. That's very true, yeah. So, if you like, you can only say that this is just about the same as what goes on with everything else. But I think actually there is a difference. And the reason why there's a difference here is because you've gone out of your way to get an independent expert group to give you advice. The advice is unequivocal and you've ignored it. Yeah. Okay. You're right. That that's the big difference, isn't it? All the other all these other things are kind of, dare I say, kind of a cultural thing or kind of a these things happen whereas this has actually been this has been <laughs> what's the right word consult there was a consultation <laughs> this happened this is what you've been advised and you've gone thanks and then you've got now a thousand people and we're all going now you guys aren't going to do this horribly are you and they go no we won't and they all go off and okay that's um i don't doubt that a lot of these shooters are pretty competent i also don't doubt that a lot of them are doing their very best but I'm not prepared to take their word for it, and I don't see why I should. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. This is being done in the name of the public. A uh, hundred million pounds of public money is being spent on controlling the disease. Admittedly, it's not to pay these shooters. It's on compensation and testing and research. But it's taxpayers' money that's going into the... Uh, uh, the, the, the eradication or the attempted eradication of the disease. And I think the public should expect more uh, and, and better data. And let's know, let's find out 
let's have the information provided to us if there's uh, evidence that this has been done properly or not for that matter. Because certainly the, the chair of the group, uh, Ronald Monroe, still thinks that what they're doing is wrong. It's not just me. That's very true. I, I mean, I've got a general rule and I'm not, you know, if people hunt, if people shoot, I, I really don't have a problem with the people. I just... I just don't naturally trust someone with a gun. It's just something I think I've been brought up with. Just, you know, if someone's got a gun, just be a bit wary. <laughs> well, I, I think the British in particular are really wary of guns because so few of us have got experience of them. I, I, I know shooters and I've used a gun on a number of occasions for a variety of different reasons. And I'm not very, terribly comfortable with them, but they're a tool which has to be used sometimes in the job that I used to do. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think now... What we've got in this country, particularly when it comes to the use of shotguns, which I should emphasize are not being used to shoot badges, in the use of shotguns, particularly for pheasants, red leg partridges, and grouse, and possibly mm. uh, rabbits and foxes, is that there are no competence requirements. Wow. You have to be demonstrably not mentally ill and uh, <laughs> able to store the guns safely and yep. not let them be stolen or get into the wrong hand. But when you go to get a shotgun certificate, which gives you the right to keep a shotgun and buy one, you're not expected to show that you can shoot straight. And unlike with deer stalking with a rifle, where really it's quite difficult to go and shoot deer without a deer stalking certificate, anybody, once they've got a shotgun, can go and shoot pheasants. It's quite remarkable, really. You know, I've, I've looked into this wee bit in a number of other countries. For example, in Italy, you need to be mm. able to demonstrate your competence. Otherwise, you won't get a license to do it. But that's, I mean, that's mad that everything else we do, that, I mean, driving. I, I suppose that the, the, the thing about it is, I, I mentioned that I thought the, the, the Badger study or the study into the welfare of killing badgers was the best uh, in the world. I, I've looked at a lot of these over the last few years. Uh, many of them from Africa, or quite a few from North America, both birds and mammals. And yeah. there is virtually no studies on the accuracy of shooting in this country. Fair bet, to be fair, on deer, red deer in particular, uh, yeah. where uh, the wounding rates of deer are consistently between 10 and 16%, uh, as opposed to you know a clean kill. Um, but I have absolutely no idea about pheasants. And I don't think the British Association for Shooting and Conservation or the Game and Wildlife Conservancy Trust, no either. Yeah. And there's the, there are one or two competency schemes, but there are very small numbers of them take up. So it's weird, quite weird. It is weird. I do think that is bizarre. And, I, and do you know what? The more I say it, when you said it out loud, it's kind of like, what? Why is that? <laughs> See, it sounds like it's something that's just been forgotten about. Like, <laughs> I, I think so. I also think without being too prejudicial about this, I think there are influential people that would stop or seek to stop something like this being brought in. Many people go shooting a bit like angling because they believe, rightly or wrongly, that it's one of the few sort of pastimes which is not heavily regulated and not overseen by pencil neck bureaucrats. And and as long yeah. as people think that, they're going to be pretty uh, resistant to change. Let's talk about these alternative ways to managing bovine tuberculosis. I want to touch on that a minute, because like I said, I've heard bits in the past and people say the current measurement of culling or the control of culling is very expensive compared to, and we brought up vaccinations, but obviously that's, you know, you're not eradicating it, you might kind of just 
controlling the level of infection in the animal, I guess. But I mean, actually, I think you said at the beginning of the show, you couldn't actually think of any way to eradicate it. Is it, is it that kind of complex where you're like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do? In order to eradicate it, we need tools that we don't yet have. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, and, and most particularly, we need much better diagnostic tools in cattle. Yeah. Um, okay. The reason why diagnosis of bovine tuberculosis in the live animal is difficult is because of mm. the way in which the organism interacts with the Im- immune system mm. and makes it difficult to detect the presence of the organism rather than the animal's reaction to the presence of the organism. So there's two ways in which you can diagnose disease or infection in, 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 in an animal. One is you can find the, the bug. You can actually f- isolate the virus or you isolate the bacteria. Or you can find evidence of the animal having reacted to the presence of the agent. And all of the diagnostic tests that are, are currently available are, or at least in wide use, are ones that detect the immune response. But the immune response isn't like the immune response you would get to COVID, or for example, or measles or even flu. It's much more complex than that, difficult to diagnose. You brought, you might, well, maybe a wee bit young for this, but many of us got vaccinated against human TB. Yes. And when we got vaccinated a few weeks beforehand, we were all tested with a skin test to see whether or not we'd got evidence of TB. And what that did was to see if you could find evidence of it. And it's not particularly sensitive. There's a fair number of what are known as false negatives. Um, Mm -hmm. And also there are a small number of false positives. So it makes it difficult to diagnose. So better tools will be necessary in order to properly eradicate it, particularly when you've got a cycle of infection in cattle, a cycle of infection in badgers, and then the transmission between the two, which clearly happens. But I'm going to sort of mention, I mentioned I got heavily involved in public health and food safety. Yeah. If you look at the way in which we manage risks with food, we do this in a way which isn't seeking to eliminate in every circumstance the hazard but what you do is to control the risk. So all food should be, as far as practicable, safe at the point of sale. Yeah. And what you do there is identify the hazards that might be there and manage the hazards by applying the appropriate risk management, the risks associated with it. So, you know, canning of food, for example, it's cooked at a certain temperature, at a certain pressure for a certain time to eliminate the risk of of certain toxins in the food. And that's a very well-recognized process. It doesn't mean that the meat or the fruit that goes into the can at the time of when it's about to be canned is demonstrably free of that organism. You apply a risk management appropriate to the problem. The risk management, given that this is a zoonosis that could be applied to this problem, is the heat treatment of milk. And the vast majority of milk that is on sale in the United Kingdom has already been heat treated. So the risk to the general public from bovine TB through animal products is just as bad as low as it possibly can be. I mean, there are some people who are drinking milk that's not been heat treated, and there are some people that like to eat unpasteurized cheese, and that's fine. As long as they know the risks, that's all right. Uh, they can get bovine TB if they want, or they can get listeriosis <laughs> and they can get a variety of other diseases if they want as well. Um, Up to them. And that's their choice. And they know the risks. 
But if you think about bovine TB as a zoonosis, that risk has been managed for 60 years because heat mm. treatment was almost universal by the mid-60s. So therefore, why worry? Of course, that still leaves you with the disease in cattle because that won't go away. Yeah. But do you need to eradicate it can you not, or can you just simply seek to control it? Bear in mind that there are many, many farms that are under restrictions, been under restriction off and on, sometimes for years, certainly for months, where their businesses are badly disrupted, simply because you're seeking to eliminate the infection on those farms. Okay. I see no reason why you should do that if eradication is impossible, because if eradication is impossible, why seek to do it on a farm-by-farm basis if it's going to reappear in six months, 12 months, or 18 months' time? Control disease. You can do this by routine testing and eliminating infected cattle without necessarily closing the herd down and keep the disease damped down across the badly affected areas, close down movements out of the badly affected areas to protect places like Lincolnshire and Cumbria. And effectively, what you've got there is a control system rather than an eradication system. I find that really interesting, that, what you've just said. So it's almost like the zoonosis element of it is under control. Like as low as it can be. So we've got that. I should emphasize that people still occasionally, and it's rare, get it directly from cattle, very occasionally from alpacas and one or two other animals, even from cats. But it's rare. It's very, very rare. So we've got that. It's very rare. It's very low. And then we've got the cattle that might have this. But that, like you said, if, if the, the zoonosis risk is low and then we can manage the direct herd rather than you know, like you said, whether it's taking individuals out or actually kind of dealing with the infected, because the eradication is probably unlikely. So so just control yeah, exactly. Yeah. the disease. That's really interesting because that's not that's not usually how it's thought through. Well, I, I, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm a trained government or state veterinarian, if you like, and my entire career was involved in eradication of livestock diseases. Yeah. Everything from brucellosis to blue tongue, to avian influenza, to Newcastle disease, to brucellosis, BSE, foot and mouth disease, swine fever, swine vesicular disease, everything was predicated on eliminating the infection from the affected animals. To move towards a regime when you've already decided you're going to eradicate and then say, well, actually, we're not going to, is a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah, fair point, yeah. (laughs) I'm not being, uh, I'm not naive about this reneging on a promise, reneging on a commitment, particularly when you've got billions of pounds, and it is billions of pounds, sunk into this is hard. <laughs> yeah. But if it's not going to work, and you, you, yeah. you decide that, you know, it goes back to what John Maynard Keith used to say, yes. when the facts change, I change my mind. And yeah. <laughs> the facts have changed, and, and yeah. we should be changing our minds. And the problem about it is that, Whenever the government gets an independent review of the bovine tuberculosis program, they always bring in a biologist. These guys are preeminent biologists, internationally renowned, FRS, very competent, but they look at it as a technical problem. It isn't a technical problem. It's a political economic problem. It's a, it's a socioeconomic problem. And we should be drawing in socioeconomic experts in order to help us manage this problem. Well, that's some very wise words from you there, Alec. I think I think that might be the, the trailer I use for the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last question to you, away from our main topic today, but I think it's maybe you'll use a topic to guide your answer on this, but 
If you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, Alec, what would you pass on? Um, well, I enjoy it while it lasts. I know, yeah. And campaign hard for wilder places. I am absolutely convinced that we must preserve more of our landscape for genuinely wild places. And yeah. Living in southern England like I do, there are very, very few places like that. I've been lucky. I've travelled to places which have them. And I've always come away feeling better and more alive than I had ever did before. So experience them, but campaign for them as well. And campaign for national parks, our proper national parks, not like the ones we've got. And campaign <laughs> for nature reserves, which are 10 times, 20 times, 30 times the size that we've got at the moment. And then once we have that, we won't have to spend all our time managing it, intervening, trapping, killing, fencing, chopping down trees, digging holes, filling in holes, because it'll look after itself. And yeah. we need to move away from this highly interventionist approach, which is always controversial. And the bigger areas will look after themselves and we'll get the abundance and we'll get the diversity and we can enjoy it without having to worry about whether or not this hole's big enough and that fence is tall enough. It's such a dream and I, I stand behind you hoping that happens. <laughs> I really do. I think it's possible. Alec, thank you so much for being on today's show. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about, about this topic that I, I think, I, I mean, I've learned so much about this and it's uh, always a uh, pleasure to get an insight from someone like yourself. So thank you so much for being on the show. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Alec is working on, you can do so on social media. His tags are in the write-up of this episode. And you can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at intothewildpod on Twitter and intothewildpodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks and you can do so by buying me a coffee, our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life. <laughs>